Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, June 18th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. These are today's headlines. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 ruling, sides with Dreamers, deciding that the nearly 800,000 people in the DACA program can remain in the United States for now. And after the shooting of Rayshard Brooks, two Atlanta police officers will be prosecuted for his death, one officer facing 11 charges, including felony murder. And will Florida become the new epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in America? We have the latest on the pandemic. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. We begin today with a huge ruling from the Supreme Court with massive implications. The court rejecting the Trump administration's bid to end DACA, the program that provides legal protections for almost 800,000 young immigrants. Those immigrants keep their protection from deportation and can keep working legally in the United States. This ruling, a stunning rebuke to the president in the middle of his re-election campaign. Claudio Seda joins me live from Washington, D.C. Good afternoon, that's right. The Supreme Court blocked the President Trump's decision to end the DACA program. And here outside of the Supreme Court, there is a celebration in a five to four decision that largely fell along ideological lines. The justices said that the administration failed to give an adequate justification for terminating DACA as required by the law. Chief Justice Roberts is the one who wrote the decision he said, and I'm quoting, the dispute before the court is not whether the Department of Homeland Security might rescind DACA. All parties agree that it might. The dispute is instead primarily about the procedure the agency follow in doing so. Trump blasted the ruling as politically motivated. He tweeted this horrible and political charge decision coming out of the Supreme Court add a shotgun blast into the face of people that are proud to call the Sims Republicans and conservatives. And here, as you can see, people are shouting. They are very happy. And there are many dreamers like, what's your name? My name is Luz Chavez. Luz, what is your reaction right now? How are you feeling? I feel exhilarated. I know that I'm here with my community. I'm here with youth from all over the DMV. Um, feeling resilient in front of the steps of the Supreme Court where the decision was made uh, in support of our community, in support of all, all the immigrant youth around the country right now. Now, nobody expected this. People were thinking even that it might, you know, be a decision against dreamers. Were you surprised? I was very surprised. Um, I was always thinking for the worst. Every single day in the back of my mind, I had the idea that the day that the Trump administration takes away my DACA will be the day that my family loses their only source of income. It will be the day that I will live in the shadows once again. But no longer, I, I no longer think that again. Thank I, I know that the victory we have is well, our community. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And well, with that, I'll go back to you. Thank you, Claudio Seda, reporting from Washington, D.C. And joining me now is Rachel Rosenblum, a law professor and co-director of the Immigrant Justice Clinic at Northeastern University School of Law. Rachel, was today's ruling a surprise to you at all? 
Good afternoon. Yeah, it, you know, I think in some ways we were all very surprised and, and relieved. Um, <laughs> in some ways, I'm not surprised. I mean, we have to remember that all of the judges who originally heard these cases in, in district courts around the country reached the same conclusion. Uh, so I think the law was on our side, but, you know, you never know. This is a very, very conservative court. And, uh, we always kind of have to be prepared for the worst. So we were, uh, it was, this is a, a wonderful surprise today. And Rachel, it was a five to four ruling, but it was complicated with several justices writing their opinions. Talk to us about the deferring arguments they had. Okay, so yeah, it is a kind of a fractured uh, opinion, a lot of different opinions by different uh, justices. But really what it boils down to is this. There were five justices uh, who agreed that the, that the Department of Homeland Security acted unlawfully when it ended DACA. Uh, there are very strict uh, rules. We have something called the Administrative Procedure Act, and it lays down the requirements of what uh, government agencies have to do when they act. And uh, the courts, the, the justices found that the, that the agency, the Department of Homeland Security, simply hadn't followed it, the, those requirements. It had made a decision that was arbitrary and capricious. Uh, it had just said, oh, this is unlawful and we're not going to look into the different alternatives of how to, we're not going to really go into any explanation of that. We're not going to think about different ways we could uh, maybe end parts of, of, of this uh, program that had been uh, called to question by the courts, but not end others, etc. So they didn't do anything that they were supposed to do under the law. And so that was, that was five justices, Chief Justice Roberts, and then the four uh, liberal justices of the Supreme Court, uh, Justice uh, Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and Justice Ginsburg. Uh, and then there were four justices, um, uh, Alito, Kavanaugh, Thomas, uh, and Gorsuch, who all would have allowed this uh, decision by DHS to stand. There's some disagreement. For example, Justice Sotomayor uh, wrote a very powerful uh, opinion uh, saying that she thought that the constitutional claim should also be allowed to be pursued. So there was a, a um, the original cases challenging DACA had said that there were um, kind of procedural problems, but that also this was a discriminatory act. That if you look at what uh, President Trump has said about Latinos, has said about immigrants, there was clearly uh, animus. There was a, a racial animus here, and he was out to get uh, the, the administration was out to get certain groups of people, and um, that she she would have liked to see that claim continue. And Rachel, of course, this ruling doesn't mean that DACA will stand forever. The president has the power to end DACA. The court the court ruled that the administration just did it in the wrong way. Correct. That is correct. So this wasn't a case about whether the administration can end DACA. It was a case about how it did that. And it did that in a way that was improper. So that decision is invalidated. Uh, the big question is what happens next. So certainly the Trump administration could start all over again and could try to end DACA in a way that might be upheld by the courts. Uh, I mean, I think the big issue here, right, is there's an election looming. Uh, the election is in just a few months, and in January, certainly if, if, if uh, President Trump is reelected, I think there's no question his administration could certainly find a way to end DACA. Uh, given that it's only a few months away that they were having an election and that um, it does take a while, if you follow the rules, 
it, it takes a while to for an agency to make a, a big decision like this. And so uh, it's now a question of time. And certainly if they go ahead tomorrow and announce that it's ending again, uh, there will be new litigation about that because if they do that right away with you know without following the proper procedures, then that would also be open to litigation. So this is all going to play out, I think, really in November. And Rachel, my last question, what does this mean for people who want to enroll in DACA now? That is the really big question that we're all trying to figure out right now. Um, and I, I mean, what happens right now is this case goes back down to um, the courts that originally heard these cases. So the, the Supreme Court has ruled on it's um, on the appeals, and so it goes back down to the, the judges, and those are the, the district courts that had issued these injunctions. And um, I think uh, there's, so it, it will be left to them to decide, but it seems to me that there's a very good chance that the, the result of that will be that they say that new DACA uh, applications can be submitted. It's certainly, there's no question that people who already have DACA keep their DACA. That's absolutely clear from this decision until the administration takes some new action. Well, we're um, going to have to wait question, and see. Yeah. Yeah. The new ones, that's the big question. Well, thank you so much. Rachel Rosenblum from Northeastern University School of Law. Interesting conversation. Thank you. Now let's go to Fatima Flores Lagunas. She's a DACA recipient in Omaha, Nebraska. Fatima, you and I met in November, the day of the arguments when they were heard. And I remember how hopeful you were that day. Talk to us about the moment today. What was your reaction when you heard the news? Yes, hello, Lorraine. Nice to see you again. Um, yeah, it was incredible because a lot of DACA recipients and dreamers prepare for the worst. They're kind of, you know, let's prepare for this to happen and we'll continue fighting and organizing. So the fact that it came down to this decision was to me at least very surprising because we're ready to fight. We're ready to continue showing why we're here to stay and why this is our home. And we're glad that we've had this temporary relief on behalf of SCOTUS so that we can continue pushing towards November and making sure that we elect a president and a Congress that will fight for the DREAM Act and Promise Act of 2019. Fatima, let's talk now a little bit about you. You were brought to the U.S. from Mexico when you were just six years old. Talk to us about the effect DACA has had on your life. It has honestly been an incredible journey that I've been able to um, go on because this uh, a lot of people like to sensationalize what happens with DREAMers and with DACA recipients, but they fail to realize the daily impact that this decision has on our lives from being able to acquire a driver's license, open up a savings and checking account. Um, in my situation, you know, ma making sure that I can provide for my family by working in the country legally, we pay taxes. So it's an every single day reality that we face and had something happen to DACA in a more um, damaging way, it impacts our livelihood. Absolutely, without a fact. And not only ours, but our families. So it's a sigh of relief that we continue, we can continue working, going to school, getting our degrees. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college and contributing to our communities. So it's an every single day reality that we face. And I'm glad that we can breathe a little lighter today, but continue fighting and working. And staying a little bit on that topic, you live in a mixed status family. Some members are still without legal status. How does this impact your family? It's like I just said, it's very real. We 
we know the struggle because we continue to live it every single day. You know, I I'm blessed that I have DACA and that I can continue um, working and contributing, but I know that it's it's tethered to this policy. So it's not only reflective of me, but it's also an emotional weight for my family to for them to encourage me to continue fighting. And um, my nieces and my nephews are now, they were born in the country, so they're citizens. So I'm hoping that through my struggle and my efforts, they can, they understand the privilege that they have and continue to fight for other people after all of this is over. And Fatima, my last question, as you were saying, you've been advocating for the DREAM Act for several years. Do you feel your hard work has paid off and what change do you wanna see next? I feel it has paid off because it's allowed the opportunity for dozens of people like myself to share our story. We need to continue sharing our nar narrative and ensuring that it's our stories and our struggles that are being told through our lens and nobody else's. So I, in that way, I feel like our efforts have paid off. We have an incremental change right now, an incremental relief, but it needs to be tied to a, a bold vision and a bold policy that extends beyond this, like the Dream and Promise Act of 2019. So it's about taking the wins like today and letting them fuel the movement as we continue fighting forward for equitable and just policies for all. Well, thank you so much, Fatima Flores Lagunas, dreamer and advocate. We surely appreciate your time and I love talking to you again. Good luck. Thank you so much. Now to the latest developments in the police-involved shooting that claimed the life of Rayshard Brooks. Both police officers who responded to the Atlanta Wendy's, where Brooks had the scuffle with police, are now facing charges. Andrea Linares tells us more about the investigation. The first charge is felony murder. 27-year-old Garrett Rolfe is facing 11 charges in all after shooting Rayshard Brooks in the back. If he's convicted, he could pay for it with his life. The other officer, Devin Brosnan, is charged with aggravated assault, even though his attorney says he never pulled out a gun and is being unfairly charged with the crime. Brooks's widow reacting to the charges filed. I felt everything that he felt just by hearing what he went through. And it hurt. It hurt really bad. Also, shocking new details. The prosecutor says that these photos influenced his decision. They show Rolf kicking the man, the other officer standing on Brooks' shoulder after he was shot. And at the time that the shot was fired, the utterance made by Officer Rolf was, I got him. A non-eventful DUI turns physical when the officers try to put Brooks in handcuffs and he refuses. The prosecutor claims the officers never told him he was under arrest or why. Brooks then runs away with one of their tasers. Rolf runs after and it's after Brooks turns back and points the stun gun at Rolf when Rolf fires his gun. The city of Atlanta says you cannot even fire a taser at someone who's running away. So you certainly can't fire a gun, a handgun, at someone who is running away. Rolf's attorneys have responded to the charges in a statement. Officer Rolf's actions were justified. When Mr. Brooks turned and pointed an object at Officer Rolf, any officer would have reasonably believed that he intended to disarm, disable, or seriously injure him. 
Brosnan's attorney also speaking out. What I will say about Devin is he's not a state's witness. He's a witness. He will tell the truth about what he saw, what happened to him and what happened. And he will do so if he gets a subpoena. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation says it was not consulted by the district attorney before charges were filed. The state agency is still reviewing its independent and impartial investigation. Ex-officer Rolf's attorney Lance LaRusso responded to the prosecutor's contentions that Rolf kicked Brooks as he lay dying. He says his client never kicked Brooks and if there was video of that moment, we would have seen it by now. In Miami, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea Linares, for that report. And joining us to break down the charges is Roy Austin. He's an attorney in private practice and a former deputy assistant attorney general at the Justice Department under President Obama. Roy, what do you make of the charges? Are you surprised by the 11 charges against former officer Rolf? You know, I'm not surprised by those charges. I would expect um, I mean, this was a serious incident with a, a number of, of elements to it. Uh, and the prosecutor charged it as, uh, I suspect he prosecuted, he charges uh, anyone who's involved in, in any kind of shooting uh, conduct. The Brooks family attorney said this about the evidence in the case. Let's listen. What you saw and what we all saw is one officer standing on a man who was dying, standing on top of him. And then the other officer literally kicking him while he was on the ground dying, literally kicking him while he's down. Roy, what is the significance of the alleged kicking and stepping on Mr. Brooks' body? You know, the, the significance of it is that it, it shows the attitude of the officers. Uh, it shows that the officers um, were largely out of control, uh, that they treated this man as, as less than human. Um, and I mean, he has two gunshot wounds in the back. Why are you putting your foot on him uh, at all at this time? And so not necessarily to the act itself of shooting him, but it certainly goes to the mindset of the officers that were involved. The officers were just mad that he had taken uh, the one officer's, Officer Rolf's uh, taser. Attorneys for Officer Rolf say he was justified in using deadly force, but at the heart of that discussion is whether or not a taser is, in fact, deadly, a deadly weapon. Is that correct? That, that is a huge question in this case, and I think the law is, is somewhat uh, unclear on this, and I think a lot of that's going to go to how these officers are trained. But I, I think Rolf knew. Rolf did not feel that the taser uh, was, was deadly to him. Uh, he was mad that this man had run away with his taser and, and he was going to make him pay for that. And I think that's really how the prosecution is going to argue this case. But there is a legal question as to whether a, a taser uh, is considered deadly, uh, a deadly weapon. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the GBI, says it was unaware that the district attorney planned to file charges against the officers as the agency is still conducting its investigation. Did the DA rush to file these charges? You know, I don't know the answer to that, and, and I'm not sure that GBI was the lead agency uh, with respect to this investigation and whether or not the uh, DA, Paul Howard, had others uh, conducting his investigation for him. But regardless, charges are, are very often filed before an investigation is complete. Sorry, I interrupted you. 
continue. That's all right. I was just saying the charges, if you take any other homicide case, charges are filed as soon as they know who did the shooting. Um, they don't wait for a complete investigation before they file charges. And Roy, what happens next in this case? What can we expect? Uh, we can expect a, a, a lengthy set of motions on the issue of whether or not a taser constitutes uh, a deadly weapon, uh, whether or not the officer's conduct was reasonable. There are going to be a lot of pretrial motions in this case. But I think the first thing that's going to happen is the officers are going to be turning themselves in um, and they are um, they're going to start the process of the of the prosecution. Well, thank you so much, Attorney Roy Austin, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the Justice Department under President Obama for your time. Thank you so much. Cases of coronavirus continue to surge all over the country, Arizona reaching its hospital capacity and Florida now at risk of becoming the next epicenter of the pandemic. This, as the president says, the numbers are minor and he's moving ahead with his rally on Saturday. States across the country racing to stop the spread of coronavirus as more and more hotspots emerge. Numbers of people testing positive are increasing in 20 states, hospitalizations going up in 15 states, and the death toll rising in 13 states and Washington, D.C. In Texas, another daily record with nearly 3,000 COVID patients hospitalized Wednesday, an increase of 85% since Memorial Day. While our hospitals currently have enough beds, for people who need one, uh, we may find ourselves in a dangerous situation with hospital capacity if the trend continues. I think that we've uh, opened up too soon. In Arizona, cases have doubled in the last month, smashing a record on Wednesday, nearly 2,500 new COVID-19 cases in a single day. This week, um, we did hit our capacity in our covid designated ICU unit. Florida now being called the new possible COVID-19 epicenter. Scientists at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania say Florida has, quote, all the markings for large transmission because of the state's aging population and the prevalence of nursing homes, geriatric care centers and retirement communities. With 2,600-plus cases announced statewide Wednesday, Miami-Dade's mayor saying he won't rule out another countywide shutdown if the virus keeps spreading. Businesses that are not abiding by the rules will be shut down by Miami-Dade police. Meanwhile, Oklahoma is one of the 10 states seeing their highest average daily cases counts since the pandemic began. But despite the data, on Wednesday, President Trump said he's not worried about his upcoming rally in Tulsa slated for Saturday. If you look, the numbers are very minuscule compared to what it was. It's dying out. We should have done any and everything that we could to move this to some other time because, as you all heard, our numbers are spiking. This could be a super spreader. Tulsa just saw more cases in a day than ever before, and a judge there has dismissed a legal effort to stop President Trump's MAGA rally. More of you news after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, Your World, Your News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Officials in China are reporting 24 new cases of coronavirus in the country's north. Most are in Beijing, where a new cluster emerged last week. Since then, the city has been ramping up testing and imposing tight restrictions. Many flights in and out of Beijing have been canceled. Nearby neighborhoods were locked down and schools opened just weeks ago are again shut. The new cases bring the city's total cases since the start of the cluster to 158. Meanwhile, on Thursday, Hong Kong Disneyland became the world's second Disney park to reopen. It's one of the smallest Disney theme parks and it closed on January 26 due to the global coronavirus crisis. Guests are required to book reservations online up to seven days in advance in order to maintain crowd control. Upon arrival, they will have their temperatures checked and be required to wear face masks. Annual pass holders will get priority for booking reservations. Since the virus was first identified in January, Hong Kong was quick to enact social hygiene measures. Currently, the city has recorded only 1,110 cases and four deaths. And Cuba's government announced it will begin reopening the country today after almost three months of lockdown that has left its ailing economy in a deep recession. The government says the process will unfold in three phases to avoid a spike in coronavirus cases, starting with outlying provinces in June and then moving on to a second phase beginning sometime in August. Return to normality isn't expected until November. And the president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, released a statement saying he will continue with his presidential duties while in isolation. He is being treated for pneumonia at this military hospital in Tegucigalpa. Hernandez's wife, Ana Garcia, also tested positive for the coronavirus, along with two presidential aides. But according to officials, she has not presented any symptoms of the disease. And English soccer is back and with a message. The Premier League's interrupted season resumed Wednesday and included a show of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Players and staff, as well as refereeing officials, took a knee before the first game kicked off. During the match, players wore jerseys that did not show their names, but instead the words Black Lives Matter. All of this was in tribute to the movement, which has grown in prominence around the globe since George Floyd's death. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.